The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Today's scripture is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. You can follow along on the screen, or if you're using one of the Bibles around your chairs, it's on page 571. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am send me. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, Let's pray and get rolling. Uh, Father, I pray for us this morning. Uh, I'm in need of your grace. I'm in need of your mercy. God, we are in need of your grace and mercy. Once again, we are coming in from different places in our lives, uh, different days, different weeks that we've all had. Uh, God, I'm I'm just aware of our need for you. If you don't fill my words, our time, our ears, uh, then this is a waste of time, and I pray that you would do just that. God, lead us, speak to us. It's in your son's beautiful name we pray. Jesus, amen. So, Doxa is a weird name for a church. Uh, it is. I, I, I own that. Uh, I, it's, it's funny to watch somebody, whenever you tell them the name for the first time, like they always, like if somebody ever asks you or asks like, where do you go to church? And you say, I go to Doxa. They always say like, like come again, like that here, like Dox Church. Like they don't know what you're saying. It's funny to watch. I, I like to watch people read it for the first time if they haven't heard it. And they're like, Doxa, you know, they don't really know how to pronounce it as tentative. Uh, People wonder, like, what is it about? What does it mean? Some people feel compelled to write it in all capital letters, like it's an acrostic. Like, those weird letters have to mean something other than just spell doxa. Well, well, doxa is actually, uh, there's a reason behind the name. Doxa is a Greek word, but the New Testament, the letters and histories that are written in the New Testament were written originally in Greek. And doxa is the Greek word that means glory or glorious. And there's a reason that we picked that uh, as the name of our church. It wasn't just to make people like uh, say weird things, or but it was because that glory, the idea of glory, is at the heart of who we are. The idea of glory is at the heart of why we are planting a church here, why we're desire to plant churches up and down the Grand Strand, and why we are planting communities, all, community groups all along the Grand Strand. The idea of glory is at the heart of that. Glory is at the heart of our mission, which is what we're reminding ourselves of this morning, to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. 
Today we're going to look at Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. Thank you, Corey, for reading that. And we're going to see the connection between glory and mission. There is a connection there between glory and mission. We're going to see how glory changes us into a people who are radically devoted to the mission of God. We're going to see three things in this passage, hopefully, or four things, sorry. Four, you get an extra one today. A bonus, I'm not going to charge you for it. We're going to see uh, how we become a people of glory who, sorry, a people of mission when we're impacted by glory. We're going to see how that happens when we are overcome by reality, when we are overwhelmed by glory, when we hear a call and we're sent on mission, when we're overcome by reality, when we're overwhelmed by glory, when we hear a call and we're sent on mission. Look at the very first part of Isaiah 6-1 that uh, Corey just read for us. In the year that King Uzziah died. Let's just start right there. That's significant. Like That doesn't really mean anything to you and I, but that means something very, very serious and very real for Isaiah who's writing this letter. If I were to say uh, in the year 2001 or in September of 2001, that would mean something to you guys who remember like where you, you might not remember where you were in September of 2011, but if I say September 11th, 2001, you know exactly where you were at that moment. You know how you felt in the weeks following that. And this was a momentous moment like that for Isaiah who's writing this letter. That's because Uzziah, the king, was made king at age 16 of the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. The kingdoms of, of Israel and Judah have been split by now. Two tribes are down in Judah, and he's king in Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Judah. And he reigned for 52 years, became king at age 16 and reigned for 52 years. And in his 52 years, Uzziah was one, of the, was one of the good kings that they had. He followed God. He was a wise and powerful ruler. He had an army of over 300,000 people, 300,000 troops. And he had a mighty army that was consistently winning battles against their neighbors. He says that uh, in Second Chronicles, it talks about how his fame had spread far and wide around the country of Judah. He built the country of Judah up till it was uh, in a season of prosperity, that they were enjoying riches. He built fortifications, he built cisterns, so he built irrigation systems, he built the infrastructure into Judah. His fame spread. These were glory years for the country of Judah. Glory years. There was devotion to God and prosperity and peace in the land. And everything was good. The interesting thing that we hear from history is that Isaiah, we believe, was either a cousin or a nephew of King Uzziah. So Isaiah's already been prophesying. We see, like, we, already, we know there are in Isaiah 6, there's five chapters already of prophecies. He's already been prophesying in Judah, and he's a member of the king's household, of the royal household. So he's well-educated, he's well-connected, and he's probably, if he's not wealthy, he's at least comfortable. He's well-off. He doesn't have concerns. If he says something that people don't like, he doesn't have to worry because he is the nephew or the cousin of the king. He's going to be okay. He's protected. And heck, the country is enjoying a great season of prosperity and peace and the people who are worshiping the one true God. It's a pretty good season of life. 
But then something happened that began to change these things. Even before here in verse one in the year that King Uzziah died, even before that, see Uzziah, like a lot of us have happened in our lives, he went through a season of prosperity and peace. It seemed like for a while, everything he touched turned to gold. Things were going well for him. And things happened in his, something happened in his heart where he says in Second Chronicles that he became proud in his heart. Whereas before he was humble and sought after God, he became proud in his heart. And he took something upon himself that a king in Israel never, or a Judah never should have done. And that is he went into the temple and he tried to make the sacrifices to God himself. That was, a, that was a job only for the priests. There were three offices in ancient Judah or Israel, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And the king was not supposed to do the work of the priest, which was the one that would make the sacrifices in the temple. King Uzziah took it upon himself to go in and make the sacrifices himself. And the priest came in and had to stop him. And whenever he looked at them and they told him, you shouldn't be here, king, he says that he got proud and haughty in his heart and he looked at the priest and whenever he did, leprosy broke out upon his forehead. And he had to be immediately rushed out of the temple because the judgment of God was upon him. And he lived the rest of his days still with the title of king, but he was separated from the rest of his country and shamed the rest of his, the rest of his reign. And then now he's lived in shame and now it's the year that King Uzziah died. And Isaiah is filled with uncertainty as to what the future holds. Isaiah is filled with uncertainty because there's great political uncertainty. How is the next king going to rule and reign? How is the king after him? Who's gonna, what, what's gonna happen? Uzziah has delivered us 52 years of prosperity and growth. What's gonna happen now? And Isaiah is worried. There's great cultural uncertainty Uzziah had come through and he had abolished all of the idols, except for the high places, which is a whole other story, but he had abolished all of the idols in Judah. And now there's wondering, like, what's going to happen to us as a culture? Where is our worship for God? There's great religious uncertainty. And then there was great personal uncertainty that Isaiah faced. What's going to happen with him? What if he says something that people don't like as the prophet of God and he no longer has the protection, if he no longer has the protection of the king to back him up? And not only that, but in the rest of this, we'll, uh, we're not gonna read that section, but the rest of this chapter, when God gives Isaiah his brand new commission, he says, I'm sending you to a people. He tells him up front, I'm sending you to a people who aren't gonna listen, who are gonna have hard hearts, I'm giving you a job, but you're never gonna get satisfaction of seeing like good stuff happen from it. And maybe you and I find ourselves in a similar place as Isaiah. Because we live in an age right now at this moment where there's great uncertainty. There's great political uncertainty. Uh, wherever you fall on the map, and we do fall all of all around the map in this room, there's great uncertainty about where our future is going in the United States of America. Particularly in our relationship as Christians to the government or our relationship as Christians to society. What happens if this guy is elected? What happens if this lady is elected? What happens if all these different scenarios? 
And I don't know if you've looked at your social media feed, but it is like, I feel like there's 20, 25% of my media feed are like funny videos and the rest of it are arguments about this guy or this girl or what this person said or what this person said and name calling back and forth. We live in a day of great cultural uncertainty. But regardless of where you fall on the map, there, we know that almost everybody can understand that there's a great cultural upheaval going on in our country right now. And if you view it as a Christian, you have to wonder where is the culture going in relationship to us as Christians and me personally as a believer. Things have shifted dramatically in the last five to 10 years, but really, if you've been paying attention, this is just the, the result of a great tectonic shift that's been happening over decades in America. It's not something new. There is great uncertainty. There's great religious uncertainty. I don't know if you follow stats. I'm a church geek, so I do, but uh, nearly every denomination in the United States of America reports every year for the last more than 10 years has reported a decline in membership. Almost every major denomination in the United States of America. Uh, I don't know if you watch like the demographic trends, but the nuns, the people who claim no religious affiliation is the fastest growing segment in the United States of America. Uh, Some years ago, they said like America is going to this to look like Europe one day, but we're all, I mean, it is accelerated in his, in its extent in regards to religious affiliation. Even in the South, it's affected us. Every year, every week, churches are closing their doors. You probably drive by some of them if you're driving through the country. Little churches that were once full of people who were nearby and now as the older people die off, they don't have enough people to keep the place going. It's not just a northern trend, it's also trending in the south. Fewer and fewer people are involved in church. And in the, even in people who are involved in church, it's more and more casual than it used to be. Uh, used to, like when somebody said they went to church, it meant you went to church every week. When I grew up, like that's just, there, was, there might be negotiations on a lot of things. There is no negotiation on Sunday morning when we woke up what was happening. And yet today, people consider themselves a regular attender at church if they attend two out of four weeks. You know, some people consider themselves regular attenders at church if they attend one out of four weeks. There's great religious uncertainty. And then on top of that, many of us in this room face great personal uncertainty. Where are you in your life right now? Maybe you wonder, what does the future hold for you? And if you do, then you're in the same place as Isaiah at the beginning of Isaiah 6. And it's no accident that in the year King Uzziah died, God took a time out and he reminded Isaiah of what true greatness really is. He took a moment to remind Isaiah of what true reality really is. Isaiah moved in this, in these few verses, he moved from being overcome with reality to being overwhelmed by something else, by something 
greater. God took a time out to remind Isaiah saying, yes, I'm not going to sugarcoat things and say things are going to be awesome. In fact, at the end of this chapter, I'm going to tell you people aren't going to listen to you. But in the midst of that, I'm going to remind you, Isaiah, and I'm going to remind you, Dr. Church, I'm going to remind you, every one of us in this room, he's going to remind us that he is on the throne. And no matter what reality looks like around you, around Isaiah, it has not changed. He is still ruling and reigning. He is the sovereign over all creation. He is not worried. He is not wondering what tomorrow holds. He's not wondering about the election or cultural changes or religious trends. He is the sovereign of all creation and he's got it under control, Isaiah. And Doxa Church, he has it under control control. And whenever we meet that kind of moment, like Isaiah had, we move from being overcome by reality to being overwhelmed by glory. Have you ever seen something that changed you? Like had an experience, met somebody, had a conversation, experienced something, saw something that that changed the rest of your life? Like, hey, I experienced this, I saw this, I can never be the same again. Maybe you came face to face with a truth. Maybe you're sitting in a classroom and a teacher was teaching or you saw something, a sight that you can't, whether good or bad, that, that altered the rest of your life. Maybe you met a person, experienced a tragedy, And the weight of that experience changed you. The weight of that moment rearranged the rest of your life. It had ripple effects. That experience, that person, that whatever it is that you, that happened, and there are many of these in our lives, that drop into our life, it has a weight that ripples across every part of your being in your life. That is called glory. Because glory means weight. It means to come into contact with something that has weight or significance or magnificence in itself. This is a small example. These pipes and drapes that we put up every week, you see these bases at the bottom? Uh, They come together in a pack, what is it, a pack of five, pack of 10? And it's it's about, it's just a little bit larger than a ream of paper, but less than half as thin. And so that thing comes in the, in the postal service, and we get when we get a new a new uh, shipment of pipe and drape, uh, we you get it. And the first time it came in, like it's like, hey, this is nothing. And you go to reach down and you go to pick it up because it's like just a little package. And very quickly you realize that package, that seemingly looking light, insignificant package, has a weight to it. It has a significance to it. And you come in contact with something that has some sort of weight to it. You like there's something there. And then you pick it up and you pretend like it's nothing. That's at least what I do. And I grunt inside and I carry it and hope like it doesn't look like I'm straining because I actually am. That's the outward display of an inner excellence or significance. It's what we find so compelling about the Olympics, right? Every four years we become interested or obsessed, if you're the case of my sisters, or enthralled with sports that most of us never think about the rest of the time. For two weeks out of every four years, my sisters care about things like shot putt and air rifle and hammer throws and synchronized diving. 
We watch them on TV, and if at any other time somebody asks you to watch synchronized diving, you'd be like, are you out of your mind? But the, the Olympics come, and we'll watch them. We'll watch Air Rifle. And the thing that's so enthralling about it is because when we see people who've dedicated not just their last four years, but most of the majority of their entire life to training their bodies and learning the skills involved in their particular events, it's hard not to be enthralled. And the glory that those athletes win for themselves and their country, that's the outward display of a hidden excellency. We're not watching synchronized diving or air rifle or cross-country skiing the rest of the time. But when the Olympics come along, we watch it and we see like, wow, that's amazing what they're able to do. It's a hidden excellency that is suddenly put on display. That's the glory of something. And there are different levels of glory. Different weights. We experience them in our life, right? Some of them like affect us for the rest of their li- our lives and some of them only affect us for a few days or a few weeks. Well, they affect us. That's what glory does. It has a weight to it that hits your life and rearranges things around it. Some people have been hit by the weight of the glory of Pokemon Go and their life kind of just kind of revolves around that right now. But to be a Christian is to be someone whose life has been overwhelmed or displaced by glory. You've come face to face with the weightiest glory or the glorious glory that there is. When Isaiah encounters God in his glory, it has an immediate effect. It's like a giant weight that drops into his life and it displaces everything else in his life. And it's the same when anyone, when we read in scripture, when they come in contact with the God, with God Almighty, with the God of heaven and earth, it displaces, the, it hits their life with force and it displaces everything else in their life. And, if, and that's the same with anybody in this room who has met God personally. He, at some point, you didn't care about him. And then maybe you heard the gospel for the first time or maybe the 1500th time you heard it. But all of a sudden, that time, it hits you with a weight and that weight displaced everything else around your life. You found that you weren't all of a sudden decorating your life with God things. All of a sudden, God was at the center and everything else was decoration around it. Look at what happens when we encounter God's glory. Let's read verses one through six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. When we come face to face with God, when we meet God in his glory, 
and the weight of his majesty, just like Isaiah, we become overwhelmed by God's majesty. Remember, Isaiah is a member of the royal family, so he's been around throne rooms. He's seen the glory of King Uzziah in his zenith, in all the regalia that comes with being king of Judah at the time, a rich and powerful king. And yet God is gonna remind him just exactly who the king of kings and the Lord of lords is. And so he finds himself seeing God high upon a throne and the throne is high and lifted up and his God is so great and his glory is so magnificent that only in the temple, this great and magnificent temple can only contain just the train or the hem of his garment. That's all it can, all it can hold It's no accident that God reminds him of who he is. He sings the royal throne room. And whenever he sees that majesty, that weight displaces everything else in his life. Have you ever felt that weight? Have you ever at some point in your heart or through some sort of circumstance, maybe singing a song or someone sharing a truth with you or driving in your car or in the midst of joy or tragedy, all of a sudden you almost like you can't really explain it to anybody else around you. It's like you felt it, you tasted it, you heard it. There was majesty all of a sudden in that car, in that room, in that conversation. You felt the majesty of God. How do you explain that to somebody who hasn't experienced it? I don't know except to say that that's what happens. It overwhelms you and you know that you have tasted of the glory of the majesty of the king of kings and the lord of lords and all of a sudden whenever you taste that and you feel that when you know that in that moment there's no debate about will I serve him will I follow him will I give him my life will I give him my worship you know instinctually that's what he is due that's what is owing to him with every bit of every fiber of your being In those moments that we forget, in the days and weeks to follow, in those moments, we are reminded and we are made aware afresh that it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what anybody else does. It doesn't matter who is president or who is king or who you're married to or the state of your marriage or whether you've got enough money to pay for your bills, you know he is in control. Whenever we see God, we meet him, we become overwhelmed by his majesty. Then just like Isaiah, we become overwhelmed by his holiness. It's significant in verse three, whenever he sees the seraphim and they call out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In Hebrew, uh, to, to, if you're gonna add oomph to something that you're saying, you say it two times. So like there's a couple of instances like in the Old Testament where they where they describing gold, but they describe it as gold gold or goldy gold. Like it's it's saying it's really, really gold. Or there's one time where it talks about a pit and it says it's a pit pit, which means like it's a real pit, it's a deep, it's a deep pit. We might say it's a deep blank pit, like to, to get the feeling across to each other. That's how we would get it across. This is the only time that I know of in the Old Testament that the word is repeated three times in a row. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. 
That holy means, it's hard to define it. It means it's the otherness of God. It means he's not like you and I. It's the otherness of God. It's the, it's the rightness of God. This is, the, this is a weak explanation, but this is the closest I can get to it. Uh, there are times when uh, I'm like, Megan, I always think Megan is beautiful. And that's the truth. I'm not just saying that. I always think Megan is beautiful. That's one reason why I don't give her good answers when she asks me, like, does this look good or should I wear this today? I'm like, no, you look amazing. Like, I don't care. Like, you look amazing. It doesn't matter where they're, like, she's like, anyway, you look amazing. I digress. But there there are moments, you know the feeling, when, like, you're really in love with somebody. And you're sitting across the table from them. And maybe it's the lighting that's just right or the music's playing or they're wearing that dress like Megan was last night and I'm just looking at her and I'm thinking how right she is, how beautiful she is. And I, I, I just keep saying, like muttering because I'm oftentimes in those moments not very articulate. It's just like, man, you're beautiful. Man, I love you. Just because I don't know what else to say, I'm just trying to express her, like she's right at this moment. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to find some way to express it. That rightness. And if you take that and multiply it by affinity, that's the rightness of God when you see him. You just look at him, and when I say look at him, I've not seen it with my eyes. You look at him in scripture, and you sense that sense of his presence in your heart, and he's just right. He's other. He is perfect. It's God and his perfection. And this is how perfect he is. This is at those moments, I can't drink enough of Megan in. The seraphim have been standing before the throne of God Throughout eternity, they've seen him over and over and over and over again. And every time they see him, they can't help but cry, holy, holy, holy are you, God. It's God and his perfection and his rightness. And then we see what happens in Isaiah is what happens in you and I as well. Whenever we see the rightness of God, his perfections, all of a sudden we're instinctually reminded. Nobody has to remind us of our own sinfulness. Isaiah says, according to your uh, translation, he says, Woe is me, That's, he's a, it's really pronouncing a curse upon himself. Woe is me for I am lost. Or your translation may say, I am undone. Woe is me for I am lost or I am undone. There's this feeling that I get, again, this is just the closest I can get to it. There's this feeling I get when like Megan comes out of the bedroom ready to go to dinner or go to like, like last night, the, the, the wedding, and the night before that, the rehearsal dinner. When she comes out and she's looking beautiful, I could say other words, but I'm trying to keep it clean. When she looks beautiful, and she looks amazing, and I become suddenly aware that I am an ugly dude. Right? Like, I, I'm like, she's beautiful and graceful and put together, and I'm this, right? 
I'm kind of clunky and I'm wearing this. And I'm like, even, if, I, mean, I, I mean, I know you can't dress up a pig, but like I'm trying to, like I, I'm not even doing that very well. Like I feel, I feel my, my lack of beauty whenever I see her. And that's what happens when we see God, when we come face to face with him in his beauty and his majesty. All of a sudden, we become aware that I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I am undone. I am lost. I am broken. Nobody has to remind me of that. I instinctually know it. I am painfully aware of it. Have you ever felt that? Do you feel that? I don't mean like in a Sunday school answer, like it's the right answer, but the real answer, like really felt it in your heart. Isaiah was overwhelmed by God's majesty and his holiness, but then we see the next thing that happens is just as he was, we, when we come face to face with him, we're overwhelmed by God's beauty. This is really the kicker here. Because majesty and holiness may create allegiance, but it's sacrifice that creates love. Majesty and holiness may create allegiance, but it's sacrifice that creates love. Isaiah becomes aware, woe is me, I am lost, I am undone. And then what happens? And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now the question that arises with me is, how could a burning coal cleanse Isaiah of his guilt and atone for his sin that he's painfully aware of at this moment? And the reason that it could is because it came from the altar. And the altar for years and years and generations and generations for the Jews is where they sacrificed the lamb for the sins of his people. And year after year, day after day, when that was done, it was pointing towards the, the lamb that would be slain. And his blood poured out for the remission of your sins and the cleansing of your guilt and the atoning of your sin. As Jesus Christ in his willing sacrifice is able to cleanse us. And when we see God and his glory and his majesty devote himself to cleansing us at great cost to himself, all of a sudden, like this external weight of majesty, this external weight of holiness, all of a sudden becomes an inner spring of love, of beauty. It's here that God's beauty or glory is most clearly displayed to us. It's here that glory means, moves from being something outwardly that presses upon us to something that springs from our hearts. Have you been overwhelmed by that kind of glory? Has that kind of weight dropped on your soul? 
pray that it would today. If it hasn't, I pray you would seek it. I pray you would earnestly ask for it. I pray you would not give up until it does. But if you have experienced that in your life, if you are a believer, the question is, have you forgotten? Let's rush through the rest of this. Isaiah was overcome by reality, then overwhelmed by glory, just as we are when we meet God. But then he heard a call. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? It's here that we find that glory has changed us. It's here that we find that glory has changed because a call comes out that says, who will I send? And all of a sudden that call stirs our heart when it never would have before. Maybe God, we don't know, I'm not trying to add to the text, but maybe God was crying out before this, whom shall I send? But all of a sudden Isaiah hears it now and he says, I'll go. We know that it says that the eyes of the Lord search to and fro across the earth looking for those whose hearts are wholly his. But once you've been overwhelmed by glory, it changes the effect of the call of God upon our hearts. Who will go? All of a sudden it stirs our hearts. I was thinking about, uh, um, I was thinking about the Kramers. We've been having a lot of babies at Doxa and the Kramers are up next. They have a baby like really close. And they're going to experience something that if you've been a parent, you have experienced. And that is the, the sound of a baby's cry changes once you have a baby. I'm not saying it's pleasant, but stick with me, guys. All of a sudden, like before, when you might be on a, an airplane or uh, in a store or a restaurant and you hear a baby cry, like, I'm not saying it's pleasant, but before it would just be just flat out annoying Whenever you've had a baby and you've heard that baby cry, all of a sudden, a baby cry in general has a different sound to you because you know like, man, that parent's dealing with something right now, that baby's dealing with something right now, I know how that feels. But even there's something different when you hear your baby cry. When you hear your baby cry, all of a sudden, it stirs your heart the way that a baby cry never did before. And whenever you've been overwhelmed by glory, all of a sudden the call of God asking who will I send and who will go for us, all of a sudden has a different ring in your ear. has a different ring in your heart. No one has to compel you or bend your arm. You hear the call and it stirs your heart. It compels you to respond. And then it it causes you to volunteer for action. Isaiah doesn't ask whenever he says, who will go for us? Isaiah doesn't ask where or when or who or what. He doesn't ask at all. Whenever you've encountered the kind of, that kind of beauty and that kind of glory, all of a sudden it doesn't matter. Hey, send me to people who aren't gonna listen, which is what he turns around and says to Isaiah. Send me to people who won't listen, I'll go. Volunteer in nursery, 
greet people at the door when I'm not really sure I like people all the time, plant a community group, uh, meet with somebody to mentor me, meet with somebody to mentor them, open my home to other people who I don't know, open my heart to people who I don't know very well. All of a sudden, it doesn't become a big ask anymore whenever you hear him saying, who will go? Who will I send? All of a sudden, it stirs your heart and your affections. Nobody has to twist your arm and you say, I'll go. Just go with me. Isaiah heard a call just as we hear a call. Then Isaiah was sent on mission just as we are sent on mission. This is amazing, and don't miss it as we end this. Isaiah just doesn't hear the call, who will go, who will we send, and volunteer. He is sent. He's been in the court of the king of kings. And he's being sent, he's being sent out as an emissary of the king. And as doing so, he carries the king's banner and he carries the king's seal. If you go to a, a, a faraway village that is under the king's authority and they don't know who you are, you ride up into the town, they may have never met you before, but you carry the king's banner and you carry the king's seal, all of a sudden what you are doing has a whole different weight than if you didn't. He's being sent by God. Just as you and I have been sent. Matthew 28 18 through 20, and you guys know this. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Glory. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, what? I am with you always to the end of the age. Isaiah heard God saying, whom shall we send and who will go for us? And he said, send me. And we hear our Lord who sacrificed his life for us saying, go. And I'll send you with my power. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I will send you with my power and I will send you with my presence. I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our mission at Doxa Church. In fact, it's not just the mission at Doxa Church. It should be the mission of every church in every age in any nation in any culture but it's our mission because it's his mission. If he's sending us and he's going with us, then to do anything else with our lives would be a loss. Over the next few weeks, you're gonna be offered opportunities to join a community group, to serve But those aren't just ways that we're trying to keep the machine of church going or keep us busy or give you guys something to do. Everything that we do, everything, is for the mission of making disciples who will joyfully 
not out of compulsion, because whenever you meet glory, whenever you hear the call, it is a joyful response. Who will joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. Has your life been displaced and overwhelmed by the weight of God's glory? If it has, then let's join together to hear the call and be sent on mission. It's the greatest thing that we could do with our lives. And he sends his power and his presence with us. It's worth all we have. Let's pray. Father, you are glorious. You are the gloriest of glories. You are the sum of reality. You are the source of every one of our dreams or the ending point of every one of our dreams. Every goal that we have, everything that we seek, all ends in you, though oftentimes we forget it. We tend to worship those things rather than you. Father, I pray that if anyone's here who does not know you, that they would be overwhelmed by your glory, by your majesty, by your holiness, and by your beauty in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf this morning. If anyone's here who does know you, God, I pray that you'd remind us of your glory. And Father, I pray that we would hear your call and we would volunteer to go, not just at Doxa, but in our lives and across this world. Because God, we know that in the midst of a changing culture and uncertainty, that you are on the throne and that you send us with your power and your presence. And that's all that we could hope or ask or wish for. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.